let's 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 really focus on what matters and what's important. Uh, let's care for ourselves, our communities, and for our country and our ecosystems. And that's what the Urban Agriculture Month and the Urban Agriculture Forum is all about. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome Jess, Naomi and Nick and thank you for joining me to talk about the upcoming Urban Agriculture Month and so much more. Gosh, it's with so much of the country, urban and peri-urban farming lands underwater as we speak. We're we're all really going to need more pathways to resilience and recovery, aren't we? It's frightening. Most definitely. Some quick introductions. Jess Miller, a councillor with the City of Sydney and is a super strong advocate for livable cities and greener spaces. Naomi Lacey is President of Community Gardens Australia and she lives in Darwin and has a great understanding of top-end and remote communities. Welcome, Naomi. And Dr. Nick Rose, Executive Director of Sustain, the Australian Food Network, who's joining us from Melbourne that is just such a heartland of urban food innovation and change-growing people. Welcome all. Care gardening in times of crisis for resilience, food security, community and connection to green our cities, heal ourselves and our places can give us joy and a greater sense of confidence, agency and comfort, especially in uncertain times. People have long turned to edible gardening in times of crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly been that. It's exposed the fragility of our food systems and spurred an incredible proliferation of edible gardening and urban farming across the country as more and more people either grow their own or eat with their feet (laughs) as they actively seek out and support local food producers and food hubs. Australia's first National Urban Food Month kicks off this April and it's set to further build the urban agriculture story that the 2020 National Pandemic Gardening Survey has really shed light on and that each of you here today has played a huge role in. So it's such a pleasure to be speaking with you. And Jess, thanks for joining us at such short notice. Hi. G'day, Naomi. G'day, Nick. Hi, Jess. Hi, Jess. Okay. So we've just done a bit of an intro. Uh I'm going to dig straight into some questions for you, Jess. Can I first ask you to briefly paint a picture of what drives your personal passion for urban agriculture and urban greening, green spaces, better places? Can you just give us a bit of a personal intro insight about why you're so passionate about urban agriculture? Oh, thanks. Thanks. It's a great question. I I was actually asked this yesterday and I... um, I answered the question wrong. Somebody asked me, what is it that makes me passionate about sustainability and about this kind of work? And I, and I gave them some kind of really flimsy answer 
which I totally regret. So I'm not going to do that again. And you know what? Like I think the thing that's really driving me at the moment is frustration and rage. So I'm really sick of being polite and really sick of being um, talking about the beauty of the natural world and the need to protect it. And I'm actually going to be really honest with everybody listening and just say I am so sick of seeing waste, wasted time, wasted opportunities, wasted food, wasted land, wasted intelligence. And I'm, I think I'm raging at the moment. So you've caught me on a good day, guys. <laughs> I'm almost speechless by what's going on out in Western Sydney. All those beautiful areas just being absolutely devastated. Oh, yeah, unreal, unreal. And it's like, sorry, but, you know, I hate to say I told you so, right? Okay, so from that uh, affirmative base of strong and powerful rage. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which, you know, we all need uh, at different times and to keep, to sustain us in our, in what we do. Jess, you recently posed a motion unanimously carried by the City of Sydney Council, congratulations, to highlight the importance of urban agriculture and that builds upon the City's commitment to sign the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact. Uh, I understand there are six pact categories that embed and recommend really practical action, real tools for cities. Can you tell us a bit about the pact, uh, you know, what it is, and perhaps headline a few of the six categories for action that perhaps are really ripe for action through your eyes in the City of Sydney and Greater Sydney? Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, it's true we did pass the motion um, and it was the second food motion that I've basically tried to get up and also have successfully gotten up in the last two years while on council. Um, the Milano Urban Food Policy Pact I look to as a framework is something that already existed. So what I didn't want to do was try and reinvent the wheel and of all of the kind of frameworks, and there's so many, and thinking about um, ways of trying to deal with the complexity of food systems within a hyper-urban context like we have in the City of Sydney. The Milan Food Policy Pact, I think, gave a really good overview of, of just very practical but very real principles. So I think what I liked about it was um, it addressed the issue of equity, of safety, of fairness, proximity, um, as well as some of the more lofty aspirations, but also it steeps these aspirations in very practical outcomes. So it's all about sharing knowledge and, and skills and solutions between cities who may be experiencing very um, similar um, circumstances, which is um, weirdly like given, you know, you'd think that, maybe, you know, Sydney might not have much in common with Milan or even New York, but yeah, it really, it really does in terms of land availability, land affordability, uh, changing populations, gentrification, resilience frameworks, governance. So yeah, I thought I thought that that was a really useful uh, framework to look to. Um, my frustration is that it's taking so long. Um, there's such a lag time between um, agreement and passing a motion at council and then actually dragging the bureaucracy uh, by the scruff of the neck to actually do something about it. So that's where that's where I think that's where that's where I'm kind of playing it 
the space I'm occupying at the moment is is kind of connecting the intent with the implementation and operationalization of all this stuff. Yeah, thanks, Jess. I know that was a big question to cover a lot, but um, for listeners, it is, I've, you know, it is, it's worth having a look at the pact. It's it's pretty amazing and it's very grounded, and uh, no excuse for cities not to run with some of the really grounded recommendations that it offers. Uh, that are across six areas, which are governance, sustainable diets and nutrition, social and economic equity, food production, and that includes peri-urban and urban. Uh, food supply and distribution and food waste. So they're all, you know, very core sustainability areas that cities can bite into and really deliver things on the ground. Um, Jess, I was going to ask if there was one or two other headline current things in the City of Sydney that it has underway that you'd perhaps especially like to flag or celebrate I know I'm, I'm hearing and feeling your rage and, and, and frustration that things are moving too slowly, but the city does do so many amazing things. Can you just share one or two good news stories? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, we're currently in the process of reviewing and updating our community strategic plans. So that's the kind of overarching vision for what Sydney will be like in 2050. So that's well underway and that's a really significant piece of work because it effectively sets out not only an aspiration but it sets out the mechanisms, be they budgetary, planning, operation, to actually achieve them. And one of what's really heartening to see at the moment is the recognition that food systems are integral to planning systems and what we've seen within our um, greening Sydney strategy in a very, very specific way is an extension and acknowledgement of the importance of food production and community-led food production and an openness and commitment to exploring innovative ways of doing this. So um, it's incredibly expensive uh, to retrofit a rooftop, for example, into a living infrastructure space and what this policy does is it very clearly articulates a direction of how to do that and where the money might come from and how we can better use public spaces like like as community nurseries or places where um, I think you know one of the things I'm hoping to see come out of this greening Sydney strategy is intersectionality with food and within planning is instead of having Um, you know, a milk bar, a dry cleaner, a Thai massage joint and, you know, I don't know, a $2 shop at the bottom of every other residential apartment building, as we do see in many parts of the city. It's a very heterogeneous way of planning. Um, Reimagining those spaces as community bump spaces so that you could potentially have a social enterprise or um, a community nursery whereby people who live in high density have got access to very basic horticultural or agricultural tools. So, you know, it might be a community composting, it might be a soil bench, it might be uh, a heat bed where you can put your seedlings. So, um, I'm seeing that for the first time expressed formally in these plans, which is incredible. And I think that where that will 
where that is also intersecting really beautifully is with our reconciliation action plan and making sure that First Nations knowledge is invited, celebrated and put very centrally within our within our within our urban landscape, um, not just as an aesthetic, but as a as a system, really as a food production system, as a cultural system and as a social system. So we're getting there. It's always way slower than I would like, but we're getting there. It's part of an ecology that in Sydney is really sort of moving at a different pace but kicking along. And so for the city of Sydney to be taking leadership is yeah. also setting leadership for other councils in the city and um, really important as our peri-urban areas are very challenged at the moment with floods and more. And then we've also got metropolis and agribusiness being spoken up and thought about in quite a number of new ways. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting too, like the Lord Mayor, you know, to absolute credit, she's so aware of um, the relationship between the city and the country and whenever there's a drought, you know, the City of Sydney is one of the first to donate money to, um, you know, communities working on the ground to alleviate that that hardship. Um, so I think that this is a really, rather than, I'm hoping that what this sort of signifies is this shift in reacting to disasters and going from this kind of charitable model to more of a sufficiency model whereby we're investing, you know, city communities. City communities are so connected to regional communities. Like I think it's such a myth that you've got your country and city folk. Like we all have relationships and connections to regional communities. So it makes sense to me to reinforce those connections, remind people of those connections and invest in those relationships because inevitably that's what's going to create resilience at a regional level. We as city folk cannot exist without our peri-urban regional counterparts and they likewise need us. So instead of this stupid political blah blah about, you know, city folks versus country folks, um, what I think I'm seeing more so is this recognition that we are dependent on one another and that it's a really valuable thing to be able to proactively invest in capacity and relationships rather than just kind of, you know, write a check and be charitable when needed, which is also valuable but maybe not as strategic. Okay, fantastic. Jess, I'm mindful you've got time constraints. Is there Are there any other call-outs or, or, or comments you'd like to share? And I'd on behalf of Sustain and uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Community Greening Team and Foodswell, but I'd like to say thanks to the City of Sydney for the CBD Urban Activation Grant, which means that we're all doing, uh, we've pulled together to put on some really lovely uh, special urban food events at the Royal Botanic Gardens during Urban Activation Month. Anything else you'd like to um, quickly com- quickly comment on? Could talk about this all day, but I think, um, yeah, I think it's really fantastic that there'll be... Um, a presence as part of the CBD activation and would really strongly encourage people from the city and from outside of the city to go and check it out and also play an active role in looking at our Greening Sydney strategy and making it better. Um, And please never wait for permission from council to go and do fabulous things. If you've got an idea and you want to go and plant a tree or plant some food or do something 
ambitious and bold and brave, for the love of God, just go and do it. Um, if you need bailing out later, you know where to find me. So. I love it. Have you seen the uh, microforest at Haymarket? Oh, the, yeah, the dirt, which is absolutely fabulous, yes. And we're going to try really hard to make that permanent because I think it's awesome. But I would love to see that in laneways all over Sydney and everywhere. So go for it, everybody. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jess. Um, okay, so so I've just uh, some questions for Naomi and Nick now. You're both on the steering committee of the urban uh, of the Urban Agriculture Forum, and that's one of the highlights of the Urban Agriculture Month, and is supported by the local government Urban Agriculture Network, which is pretty fabulous. Nick, can you lead us in and tell us about the Urban Agriculture Month? It's a first, so tell us what it is, what's on offer, and how people can get involved. Uh, thanks very much, Anthea, and good afternoon, and it's great to be joining you for this discussion. Um, just like to begin by acknowledging that I'm coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. Knowledge that this is unceded Aboriginal land and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So Sustain has been working on the Urban Agriculture Forum as a way of showcasing, celebrating and highlighting the importance of urban food activities across Australia now since uh, November 2016 was the very first one. Um, I should just say that a little bit of brief background as relates to Naomi as well, that both of us are Churchill Fellows and my interest in this really um, really got a, a big sort of kick along, I guess, through doing a Churchill Fellowship. Uh, actually, when I was living in New South Wales, living up in uh, Coffs Harbour, Bellingen, um, and being involved in some research uh, funded by the federal government, National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility, looking at the role of urban agriculture in helping us meet climate change adaptation and urban food security and urban resilience challenges. This was back in 2012. Um, and uh, coming out of that research where Melbourne was a case study, and I've been living in Melbourne now since late 2014, um, uh, what I learned was that heaps of people were involved in urban agriculture in Melbourne at that time, but uh, not a whole lot of it was directed around food security and food justice. Um, and conversely, there was not a lot of uh, livelihood opportunities, training, employment pathways, those kinds of things. And so my Churchill Fellowship was to go away and look at what I called innovative models of urban agriculture in places in uh, the Americas where they had experienced significant societal and economic um, collapse almost. So talking about Detroit, uh, south side Chicago, north side Milwaukee, outer areas of Toronto and Canada and several provinces in Argentina where basically their economy fell apart in the early 2000s. They had five presidents turn over in one week at the height of that crisis back in 2001. Um, so I really wanted to uh, discover places in the world where uh, unused urban space was being made productive, made aesthetic, uh, creating um, you know, opportunities to grow food, feeding people, feeding families who were experiencing food insecurity and creating training and employment and small business and livelihood opportunities for people who needed it most. So that's really been my kind of guiding compass and motivation for all this work for the last decade, really. 
Um, and we've been doing these urban ag forums, as I say, 2016, 2018, the next one coming up on the 22nd, 24th of April, care, farming and gardening in the climate emergency. And then Urban Agriculture Month, which I'm getting to, is really uh, bringing that all together nationally and celebrating and acknowledging all the fantastic projects and initiatives that are taking place all around Australia already, um, but which, as you just mentioned, have kind of been accelerated as a result of COVID and shining a spotlight on them, um, acknowledging these, you know, these leaders and champions in communities right around the country, but also making the case, uh, as Jess was just saying, that, uh, you know, a lot more needs to be done. Like this work is really valuable. It's really important for so many reasons. And it is deserving of much greater support and acknowledgement and resourcing by all levels of government, but particularly state and federal. And that's the case that we've made through the pandemic gardening survey, um, through the you know the advocacy and reform agenda that we have articulated through that, and so the urban agriculture month and the forum that's kind of in the middle of it all is really you know wanting to speak directly to our political leaders, to our policymakers, and say, hey, there's something really valuable and important going on here, which hundreds of thousands of Australians engaged in every day, every week. Uh, largely on their own time with their own resources and money. Um, how about, you know, they're making a huge contribution in so many ways to this country. How about recognising and supporting them? And so that's that's our, our call to action with the Urban Ag Month. Yeah, no, it's fantastic, Nick. And the Urban Agriculture Forum is fantastic. We'll come back to talk about some of the great speakers you've got and also the pandemic gardening survey further down the track. Naomi, so much of today's urban agriculture has grown from in various ways and stands on the shoulders of the community gardening movement and the work that legends like Russ Grayson and his partner Fiona have done over many years um, to develop policies, regulatory changes and guidelines for so that community groups who want community gardens and so that local governments can actually better recognise, better understand and just let people get on with it. And that's a huge achievement. And as Nick says, there's so much more to be done, but certainly Community Gardens Australia have been at the forefront of just normalising what sometimes was once seen as a bit fringe, wasn't it? You know, it's, it's, I think I think it's incredible having watched it for over 10 years or so. So how do you currently see the community gardening movement? Is it growing or is it sort of morphing in in diverse new directions? Yeah, thanks, Anthea. And um, just before I answer that, I'd just like to acknowledge that I sit here today on Larrakia country in the top end of Australia. I would like to acknowledge elders past, present and emerging this beautiful land that that I reside on. It's been really interesting um, since I became involved with Community Gardens Australia about seven years ago. I see the community gardening movement as gaining more and more momentum literally by the day at the moment. And I think this pandemic experience that the world's going through at the moment has been a, a really big pusher on that front. I've always been really, really passionate about building community. I think it's one of the greatest things that we have lost um, in our modern world over the last sort of 50 years or so. Um, I remember being a young girl and the neighbours would reach over the back fence in the afternoon and call out, you know, yoo-hoo, and come and grab the tomatoes for your mother, Naomi, and you'd get handed a lovely bag of cherry tomatoes and, you know, half a dozen eggs or what have you, and vice versa, you'd be handing the the fresh peaches and apricots and that back over the fence. And that just doesn't happen as much these days. 
And I think the the pandemic, getting everybody locked down and not able to access that real world where they were out and in it, but they weren't really um, participating in community. They were just sort of wandering around through the place. But that experience of being locked down and locked away from people has really brought to the fore the importance of community and being together and sharing our lives and our world together. And caring for each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And not just for each other, but also for our planet, um, the earth that sustains and nourishes us that we, we treat so poorly. And community gardens are a way of people being able to come together and, and, and share in a, I guess, in a more sort of formal sense to a, to a certain extent, but also in a very informal manner. And we've seen, um, you know, particularly through through the pandemic, a massive increase in people wanting to be um, a part of community gardens and being able to access their own food. The fear that people had over where their food was going to come from at the start of the pandemic was was quite quite amazing. And you know, I've got a, a very large food garden here in my my suburban uh, backyard and front yard and I you know just the people that I work with alone had pretty much all of them had decided they were going to come and live at my place if uh, things got really serious because they knew they'd be able to get a feed here and you know I'm not the only person that's experienced that um a lot of community gardeners and and urban um food growers um, all had the same experience of people wanting to literally move in because this was a I was going to ask, do most of the people who are part of the community garden that you're associated with at, at Palmerston and, and many others, yep. most of the people who who regularly come to the community garden, would they? Would most of them also have a home garden? Yes. Would they yes. be growing a lot of food at home? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, small, small to large amounts, you know. Quite a few of our members are renters and they don't grow as much food as others because you never know when you're going to move on, but still you can have a few pots in the backyard and on the balcony and um, be a, a member of your local community garden. It doesn't matter where you move house, the garden, the community garden's always going to be there. So, but yeah, it's, um, it's quite amazing how um, that was sort of people's first focus after toilet paper um, was where their food was going to come from. And, um, you know, a corresponding, um, you know, huge amount of people flocking to community gardens and uh, wanting to be a part of that. And new gardens springing up, like heaps of new gardens springing up throughout the pandemic all over the country. Um, quite amazing. Verge Gardens in particular, because um, you weren't allowed to go very far, but you could walk out onto your footpath and and plant, a, plant some veggies out there. So, yeah. That's so interesting. Part of what I was saying is it's what I was thinking, keen to hear you talk about was um, in terms of, you know, people sometimes have a particular view of the community gardening movement, but it is growing and morphing in all sorts of ways, isn't it? And is it, I wanted to hear your thoughts about um, whether it's sort of linking with other urban agriculture groups who are really going into uh, helping set up sort of private new arrangements. And I'm thinking of things like growing farmers in Melbourne or farm at Ford in the Blue Mountains, where people who don't have their own backyard get access to somebody else's backyard to grow to grow quite a lot of food and obviously connection and sociality and conviviality along the ways. Are you seeing, is that sort of part of what you're talking about with uh, the verges and the growth? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Just on a more, um, in a more informal sense, you know, this is people gardening, get produce for themselves and their families, not necessarily to to also make an income from from growing that produce as well. 
and to to get a living from that you know it's it's mainly people growing for their own use and that of their family and and friends and so on which is just wonderful and i love seeing that that increase of people um wanting to share land and and be being able to develop sustainable businesses and um there's so many wonderful models out there that you know nick would probably speak a lot more eloquently about because that's a lot of his work is is focused in in those areas whereas mine is much more about trying to ga- gather people together in, in community groups and share that gardening experience together there's been such a groundswell of gardening and community action during the pandemic as you've both said um and particularly during lockdown, especially in Melbourne, and there were just so many inspiring stories of people growing and sharing food, organising to deliver produce boxes to people in social housing towers, raising masses of vegetables, um, you know, free seedlings to give away to people, particularly as nurseries sold out. It was all just pretty incredible. Um, It's as though the wartime victory gardens are just being reinvented and taking flight in really diverse and creative ways in response to our current crises, crises, <laughs> health, climate, social isolation and more that each of you have sort of alluded to in different ways. Nick, congratulations on the pandemic gardening survey. It is just an incredible contribution. And you and Sustain and Project Partners, who included Naomi and the Community Gardens uh, Australia, undertook the 2020 National Pandemic Gardening Survey in June, July last year, and over 9,000 people participated in it. It's a very significant snapshot of what's going on. Let's talk about that. Can I ask you to first paint a picture of who the gardeners were? Because I think that might surprise quite a few people. Uh, sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Anthea. Yeah. So uh, I guess the first thing to say about it is we were, yeah, we, we did the survey really uh, for a couple of reasons. One was in recognition of the fact that uh, in the wake of the first lockdown, some people were being locked out of community gardens. And so Naomi actually got in touch with us and said that, you know, she was wanting to approach government ministers and, and really make the case that community gardens were essential activities and that it should be open and, and people should have access to community gardens in the same way they had access to supermarkets and farmers markets, which I think is a really important point. You know, that was that was that happened in May and we supported that campaign. Then there was, you know, as you've just alluded to, a lot of stories coming out in the media about you know, nurseries selling out of seeds and seedlings and a big upswell of people getting involved in gardening, having more time at home and, and the kind of renaissance of this, you know, Victory Gardens movement. So, and and then with, you know, it seeming that, that the, the pandemic was going to go on for most of the year, if not longer, we weren't going to be able to do our event, which we'd scoped for October, the Urban Agriculture Forum, we had to put that on hold. So we thought, well, how do we keep momentum going and let's, you know, use this time to take a bit of a snapshot and take the pulse of people who are actually doing these activities and see uh, see uh, see what's going on. And so um, luckily for us, uh, it was really embraced by a great champion of the community gardens movement in Australia and also the Urban Agriculture Forum in the form of Costa Georgiadis of uh, Gardening Australia, who really through his uh, support and profile behind the survey to encourage people to complete it. Um, but then also, and this kind of answers your question as to who completed it, the huge increase in responses actually came when the Diggers Club uh, put it out to their membership. Um, and they've got a very engaged and large and passionate uh, uh, membership of, of gardeners. Um, so once 
once they uh, put it out to their uh, e-news list, uh, we saw the responses um, quadruple overnight, really. Um, and then that was reflected in some of the response in, in the demographics, I guess, of the respondents. So there's a, a few things to note. One in terms of age, um, the gardeners tended to be older rather than younger. I think the I've got exact stats in front of me, but you know the majority were um, kind of over fifty or over fifty-five. Experienced gardeners that again the majority had been gardening for kind of ten years plus, so they were not on the whole novices. Although there were about I think um, in total maybe about nine percent who either took up gardening during COVID or you know had been starting within the last year. So quite new gardeners. Uh, what was important is in terms of the question of food security, the household income. We did ask that question about demographics and it turned out that uh, I think somewhere around a quarter of people who answered that question had household incomes below the national poverty line of $50,000 for a family of four. So that's actually quite significant um, because people talk about, you know, community gardening or backyard gardening as a bit of a hobby a middle-class hobby, whereas I think, you know, the findings of this survey certainly make the case that, you know, and, and people uh, uh, reinforce this with through comments, and we got a lot of very detailed comments about this, that um, uh, growing food was important for their food security, for their household food budget, and particularly for healthy and nutritious food and fresh food, and particularly during the uh, pandemic when they didn't want to be going to supermarkets. So that was really important. In terms of gender, overwhelmingly the respondents were women, about three quarters or a bit over three quarters were women. In terms of uh, um, cultural, ethnic background, it broadly reflected the makeup of Australia. So we had, I think, about two thirds kind of identifying as Anglo, Irish, Australian, Anglo, and then and European, Australian, another kind of 15, 20%, and then a mix of, you know, uh, more newly arrived migrant um, backgrounds, uh, including about two to three percent who identified as Indigenous or, or First Australians, which was, you know, important and pleading that we're able to get that representation and, and those perspectives and voices as well. Um, and then geographically, I think that's the other point to make, that uh, there's a very wide geographic dispersal. So obviously a concentration in the major cities, as you would expect, but right across the country, including in from remote and rural communities, uh, 62% of all postcodes in Australia were covered and 29% of the total land mass of the country. So it was it was really broad geographic representation in terms of the coverage. Thank you for that summary. It's an unfair question to ask to profile 9,000 people. Significant messaging coming out of it to me was the point you've just made and just to reiterate it, that gardening is not some middle-class hobby take-home where you've got time and largesse. For many people, it does and is really making a very significant contribution to their food security and social and emotional well-being in other ways, and that's so great to capture that state of play. Yeah, and I, and I think I think the, one of the other things to mention, Anthea, about that is um, one of the overwhelming findings that came out, and this was, you know, this was something else that was being talked about. It's being talked about that um, you know it's a lot of anxiety, you know, mental health issues because of the pandemic, because of isolation, um, and just more broadly, you know, the the nature of contemporary life, the uncertainty of work, the cost of living pressures, the you know the loneliness, particularly for people in cities. You know, this speaks to the sorts of things that Naomi is talking about with community and, and connection. We asked people about mental health and well-being and, and what difference having access to gardening meant to people during the pandemic, but also more broadly. And it was just, yeah, overwhelming how strongly people spoke about the positive mental health and psychological benefits of access to gardening spaces, both during the pandemic and more broadly. 
um, helping them cope with all kinds of traumas. People talk about PTSD, talk about bereavement and grieving. They talked about living with cancer. They talked about, you know, stress and anxiety and how having that access to that, you know, that, that garden space and caring for plants and being in nature was just, you know, so important at, at that level. And that, you know, links into our theme about, you know, horticulture therapy and the therapeutic benefits of um, of gardening, you know, the sort of work that Phil Pettit does with the Community Greening Program in Sydney and, and you know, Therapeutic Landscapes Australia, you know, Chris Blythe of Social Farms and Gardens and um, that whole body of work that's being led, you know, there in, in England and Wales and, and more broadly across Europe um, internationally. It's, um, it's, it's one of, you know, the many reasons, but a really important one, given that, you know, the Productivity Commission has said that mental illness costs Australia $180 billion every year or $500 million every day. You know, it's another reason why community gardens and edible gardening is such an important, you know, aspect of our social and, and cultural and psychological fabric and why it should be resourced and supported. And it was, what, 80% of the respondents to the survey, Nick, wasn't it, that said that their gardening activities had either substantially or very substantially impacted their um, mental um, well-being um, in the positive during the pandemic. That's huge, 80%. That's right. It just really resonated with me. I was reading some stuff, some data about rewilding impacts and and and, and forest bathing. And there's some lovely uh, detailed studies that's sort of showing huge benefits, but it literally the highest rate of benefit and greatest impact can be within the first 10 to 20 minutes and then it tends to drop off. We can all drop out into the garden for 20 minutes in the morning and, and in the evening. And from the work that I've done over the years, very concerned about diabetes, chronic disease in remote communities, you know, stress is a direct precursor to diabetes. So anything you can do to get the stress down is also just so powerful, isn't it? And what you guys are on about, it's doing that all the time and people don't even realise. It's like, a discre- it's like you know, what is it, discretionary steps. You know, this is discretionary. Uh, is it discretionary? Is that the word I'm after? Uh, you know, just the everyday take- steps you take that people measure their 10,000 steps. This is everyday steps for mental health really, isn't it? Naomi, I was just going to ask you, Ben, you've chipped in really beautifully there, Um from where you live and work, uh, what are the survey findings resonated most strongly with you and perhaps with what you see community members in Palmerston and elsewhere in the NT experiencing with COVID and food access? Or have we pretty much covered it pretty well? Um, yeah, I think sort of we've covered those points that I found most um, fascinating out of the, the survey. Um, I think that that 80% um, you know, the, it's was uh, their gardening activities was a beneficial impact to people's mental and physical well-being. You know, that was just. I mean, I always knew it was great, but gee, it was awesome to put some numbers to it. That was that was really amazing. Certainly uh, up here in the NT and and more broadly across the the um, whole top end and all of our remote communities, it, the pandemic was incredibly scary um, when it comes to food security. We couldn't get you know fresh food and toilet paper in our cities. Uh, that was just tenfold uh, exacerbated in our remote communities where, you know, they struggle to get fresh food at the best of times. During the pandemic, it was even worse, you know, horrific stories of, you know, lettuces that are virtually half dead um, rocking up in these remote communities and costing $11, $12. Um, you know, you cannot, 
feed your children on on that type of food. So, you know, it was a very, very scary time for a lot of those remote communities and it's still... How long was that really scary time? Um, Look, from what I've been able to gather, it was sort of the six to to eight months period. Um, These communities were really experiencing major food insecurity. It's just absolutely frightening. Um, Food was coming through to these communities in dribs and drabs and, you know, it was was just phenomenal on that front. we're we're doing a garden odyssey uh in a couple of weeks i think isn't it nick with um costa again visiting some gardens around the country and uh this month we're going to be visiting a um a school garden in um lake vela uh Gapawiak community in uh, the top end here and these kids the their teacher was talking to them about food security and how they were managing it in the community you know the fact that there wasn't a lot of fresh food around and and basically got the kids thinking about it. What what would they do? Uh, what would they like to do? And the kids came up with the idea that they'd like to put in a garden at the school. And this wonderful teacher, Chris, he's like, yeah, no worries. Let's make that happen. So they have. And the impact that it's had on that community there um, is, is quite profound. All of the, the leadership um, of the community behind it, everybody's treating it as this wonderful, wonderful space and with complete respect. He was telling me that the school quite often gets uh, vandalised and damaged pretty much on a weekly basis, but nobody has touched the garden. The only time that people are seen in the garden after hours are when they're in there going and collecting food to take home to the family, um, which is just fabulous. So, you know, I think some of these um, communities have they've found their own ways of managing this, this food crisis, um, but it's also highlighted the need for so much more out there um, when supply lines and, and distribution and that sort of grinds to a halt as it did in many respects with the pandemic, our remote communities can be the first ones to suffer because um, they're the, at the furthest end of the chain. And supported to do what they wanted. They are leading. I, I sat in on the Close the Gap launch last week and uh, it was just so inspiring. It's Australians lead the world in how they responded to COVID. No community transmission, no death. Yep. Yeah, and it's amazing on that front, really amazing. Um, but I think it's also highlighted to a lot of these communities the fact that they need to resurrect gardens that have, you know, gone by the wayside and things like that and, and, and to really have a good, good hard look at their, at their food supply issues. And, of course, you know, me being passionate about community gardens and all the rest of us say that as, as, as one way that, um, that food security. Thanks. Thanks so much, Naomi. Nick, uh- just wanted to ask you very quickly, perhaps you could just crystallise two or three key, key messages that you'd like from the survey and its findings that you'd like the public, but very importantly, policymakers to know more about. Sure. Yeah, so, so we, we've, uh, we've articulated and, and you can um, you know, share the link here with listeners, um, an action agenda, we call it an action agenda to make Australia's towns and cities edible. So that's our vision, that's our goal, that food is abundant, uh, you know, wherever possible food is free, particularly for those who know it, that underutilised spaces are really flourishing, productive spaces of, of, you know, edible food, building community capacity and connection and nutritional, physical, mental health and wellbeing. That's the opportunity That's that, and that is actually being done. We're going to hear about that in a wonderful conversation that Naomi's going to facilitate with Pam Warhurst, who is one of the two 
remarkable women who initiated the incredible Edible Todmorden project in, in West Yorkshire, you know, some years ago now, to business owners making it um, their passion and drive to have as much food growing in as many places as possible in that village in Yorkshire. And, the, you know, it's, it's just inspired, you know, similar projects and initiatives across England and, and internationally. And it's great that um, Pam will be joining us as part of the lead into the Urban Agriculture Forum and, and thanks Naomi for, for making that possible. But that's 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 kind of like the big picture vision, you know, the transformative agenda that we've laid out. That's the challenge uh, that we would put to policymakers and politicians and decision makers. And we've actually gone further to actually lay out how that could happen. You know, reforms around unlocking land, making underutilised vacant land available to community group and individuals who can, you know, come up with, uh, you know, uh, coherent uh, plans for, you know, using it appropriately and, and managing it well. That there's, uh, you know, resourcing, finance, subsidies and incentives in place uh, to do that, to support community gardens, to support um, schools, to support councils, to build capacity across the sector and to, you know, really ramp up an expansion of edible gardening. To really address training and mentoring and capacity building, this was a strong message when we asked people what support they needed to continue with and expand their edible gardening. That was the thing that most people mentioned. They wanted more training and support and capacity building. So that's... Uh, a key uh, focus um, and there's a great opportunity there to draw on you know people like the diggers club and the permaculture movement in australia where there's a huge amount of knowledge and capacity about how to you know establish and maintain uh, edible gardens you know so to, to link up that capacity that already exists across australia with with you know novices and people who are yearning to, to have um, more productive gardens infrastructure and materials um, uh, you know obviously you can't garden without soil uh, you know without irrigation um, all those kind of things seed, seedlings um, embedding this in policies and plans uh, working with local government and state government to have um, as they do in North America and Europe and other places and in some places in Australia you know explicit food systems strategies and urban agriculture plans and policies um, and then um, you know coordinating this and building a whole movement and network for its governance and coordination uh, that is the community working together with uh, government and other stakeholders to really uh, provide that kind of social um, infrastructure to to resource and support this for the long term. So we think that's a fairly well thought through and strong proposal that's really grounded and very doable. And uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's our challenge to policymakers. The agenda has sort of six core focal areas. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, fantastic. And are there specific things that local governments or listeners, you know, who are working? with organisations in the health or food sector can do now to move the agenda along? And I'm thinking of, is there some preventative health agenda, Commonwealth Court? There is, exactly. Yeah, no, good point. There's, um, there is actually a federal government consultation out right now on a new preventative health strategy for Australia, a 10-year strategy. So that consultation is open now until the 19th of April. And I think community gardening, community gardening and food uh you know, food systems is mentioned already uh, for all listeners and, you know, for us as organisations, this is an opportunity to to put this agenda to the federal government and get it on their radar right now, you know, in, in as Urban Agriculture Month is kicking off, a uh, great time to do it. Um, also, just, just uh, while I think about it, I found out today someone mentioned, I wasn't even aware of this, that 
it's actually Earth Day on the 22nd of April. So the day that the Urban Ag Forum starts is uh, Earth Day for 2021, which is a terrific, um, terrific uh, coincidence and timing. And also in terms of, in terms of, so that's federal government, in terms of local government, certainly in Victoria, um, local council, there is that very clear link with local government here where they have to, by law, develop their municipal public health and wellbeing plans. And they're doing that right now. They're, they're in that cycle right now. They have to be uh, endorsed by October this year. You know, there's clear examples, you know, City of Greater Bendigo, City of Moreland, City of Yarra, Cardinia Shire Council that have got strategies in place. There's clear examples um, for councils to learn from in Victoria. But, you know, even though in New South Wales and other states, there isn't that clear legislative obligation, we would say that local governments have a responsibility to uh, um, optimise the health and wellbeing of their residents. And a great way to do this is through developing a urban agriculture or food system strategy and talk to us, talk to Naomi. Um, you know, there's we know how this is done. Like there's, there's, there's processes for the creation of these strategies, there's examples. Uh, we can support you and concretely sustain this very Friday, this week actually, on Friday this week, we are launching a local government food systems networking forum, which is for uh, staff from councils that are members of Sustain as a peer-to-peer -peer learning network and community of practice for local governments to share with each other what they're doing in this sector, in this space, learn from each other and build their own capacity, you know, with our support uh, to get more engaged and active. So that's a concrete thing that, you know, is an invitation to local governments who are interested to get in touch with us. Oh, that's fantastic, Dick. And and they can go straight to, you know, obviously to you guys who actually understand things on the ground in Australia at a, at a, at a high level and at a practical level. But also, you know, there's that fantastic blueprint that's there in the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact, you know, looking at the documentation and recommendations that are there. It's just so rich and so to hand. Okay, time moving on because I, I know you're both really busy and Naomi, you look like you might just pass out from night shift. <laughs> so I apologise. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak even faster. <laughs> One thing we can all do is make sure we promote and get to the really incredible Urban Agriculture Forum that, as Nick has just said, kicks off on Earth Day, which is very uh, simpatico. Naomi and Nick, you and your committee have just put together the most incredible program. Congratulations. It really is, you know, I can't even try to summarise it. It's just so rich. But for listeners, just a headline like the pitch and calibre of the really exciting conversations that are going to be going on. You've got three keynote speakers. There's Chris Blythe from the UK Social Farms and Gardens speaking about care farming and gardening. Walter Jane, I hope I've pronounced his name almost right, um, from Regenerate Earth, who's talking about urban agriculture and the climate emergency, which we all know and see all around us, particularly at the moment. And and then, of course, fabulous Clarence Slocky will be talking about empowering Indigenous communities with urban agriculture. So much to we could unpack there, but would you like each of you just to sort of share one or two key insights or inspirations from one or more of those people that you're really expecting to hear and hoping to amplify through the event? Yeah, well, I'm certainly looking forward to... Um uh, a webinar with um, Pam Warhurst from Incredible Edible that Nick mentioned earlier. Um, she's a really um, powerful, amazing woman that's um, got a lot of incredible energy. And um, I think her sharing 
um, her journey with us is, is going to be um, a really amazing experience. Um, and I'm really looking forward to some of the, um, the papers that have been put through. Um, I know uh, Gavin Hardy, our Queensland Coordinator for Community Gardens Australia, is going to be talking about theft in community gardens. Um, and that's, that's a big problem that a lot of gardens face. And he's done quite a lot of research into that. So I'm, I'm really keen to hear his findings on, on that front and um, what, what we can learn from that going forward. And obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm very keen to, to hear from Chris Blythe as well, who had the pandemic not kicked in, I, I would have met face to face last year in, in the UK on my um, fellowship travels. So, um, you know, it's been a, a long time coming. It'll be really fas um, fascinating to hear him speak as well. So that's probably a couple of key ones that I'm looking forward to at the forum. Have you? Nick, what about, I, I mean, obviously, you know, all of these people and, you know, inspired by them and you know that inspire them as well what tell me a little bit about um what we might expect from walter jane yeah so look, walter is uh, one of australia's leading thinkers and practitioners in the whole space of i guess you know what people probably understand as regenerative agriculture but increasingly he's become focused on urban agriculture as well he's got a really profound understanding and a great way of communicating the link uh, between healthy soils and, and healthy plants and, and healthy people and the whole kind of uh, solar carbon cycle, um, soil cycle. So he, yeah, he's, and he's, he's been doing some really interesting work in, in India, I believe, with, Re with Regenerate Earth. So I'm really, really fascinated to hear what he's got to share. And it's great that he's made himself available to, um, you know, to be one of the headline speakers for this, uh, this event. I heard him speak at a um, Nutrisoil conference in uh, Albury Wodonga a few years back now, and uh, yeah, he just stood up with um, didn't have any slides or anything, just stood up with a couple of coloured uh, whiteboard pens on a whiteboard and spoke for 45 minutes to 200 farmers and had everybody in the room absolutely captivated, talking about the ABCD kind of solar soil carbon cycle. It was um, you know fascinating, uh, very engaging, uh, engaging stuff. Um, yeah, also like Naomi, really keen to hear from Chris. I had the privilege of meeting Chris very briefly when I was in the UK at the end of 2019, um, learning about social farms and gardens, that whole sector of social prescribing in the UK, the way it's becoming, you know, resourced by the central government in the UK, going to reach a million people within a couple of years. Um, I think that's a hugely significant, a great learning opportunity for us in Australia. So really keen to hear what he's got to say. Clarence, of course, talking about the, the the GY project and the collaboration with Kylie Kwong in Everly, uh, First Nations kind of design principles, fascinating and really important as well. And then so much, I mean, I'm, I'm really keen to hear about Seoul. I had the privilege of going to um, uh, Seoul, uh, to South Korea a couple of years ago for their um, urban agriculture. They're an example of a city government which has just pumped, you know, tens of millions of dollars into community gardens and urban farms over the last decade and just said, right, you know, in 2005 or six, uh, they said, right, we're way behind on this. We need to do a lot more. We're going to set ourselves some targets. We're going to resource it properly. Boom, 2,000 gardens in Seoul by the year 2020. And they just said, right, here's, you know, $60 million. Um, we're resourcing a whole network of city farmers and, you know, the Seoul urban agriculture movement, and we're going to go away and do it. And they've done it. Learning about that uh, story is, is going to be fantastic and, and great. Great for Australian audiences as well, because I'm sure that not many people know about that. 
Who's talking about that? That'll be Jin Duk Kim, who represents uh, uh, Korean city farmers, and also uh, Kim Gwang Duk, who's the director of the Urban Agriculture Division for the city of Seoul, the Seoul Metropolitan Government. So, you know, that just shows how deeply embedded urban agriculture is within the city council um, infrastructure and how well resourced and supported it is. So I think that'll be really fantastic and great to learn from our region, from, you know, in this case, Northeast Asia, how far and how fast uh, this movement can get when it's properly supported. Okay, we could talk about this for hours. Can I just ask each of you for one final incendiary or inspirational thought that you'd like to put out there? Final incendiary thought, incendiary thought. Um, look, um, look, I just want to pick up on what Jess said right at the outset, that she was, you know, she was impatient, she was frustrated, you know, she used the word angry, I think, if I remember correctly. You know, I, I would like to go back to that, I think, and, and sort of echo echo that and say, what are we living through right now? You know, just, just extraordinary flooding in New South Wales. 14 months ago was extraordinary fire. Um, we're clearly in a climate emergency. You know, we're, we're, we're just, you know, hopefully, you know, coming through a, a global pandemic. Um, we don't quite know. Um, you know, we've got other crises. Um, you know, this country's notorious globally for deforestation and wiping out habitats and species, dispossession of First Nations people, health crisis, both in terms of, you know, nutritional health and physical health with obesity and, and fast food as well as mental health, you know, loneliness, you know, there's so many, there's so many big problems that we're facing that we really need, you know, that, 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 that uh, just don't get enough attention and priority. And I, I really share and understand Jess's frustration about that. And I guess what I would say is it's time to get real and get serious. You know, we, we just don't have time to sit around and twiddle our thumbs on these issues for another five or 10 years and watching you know, more houses get swept away, more dams bursting, more soil get washed out to the oceans, more trees getting cut down, more species going extinct. We need to act and we need to act now. You know, people growing their own food is something that people are already doing. We know how powerful it is. You know, uh, my my challenge and message to every political leader in Australia is this is a, you know, this is a fantastic opportunity to uh, to do something really constructive and really positive that will be just so uh, embraced by, by you know, millions of Australians because we're already doing it. You know, we're doing it with our own resources. And if you were to get behind the community and support us, um, you know, the, the benefits would just be enormous and we'd make real progress in all these crises quite significantly, I think. So, yeah, that's what I, I guess, finish on that note. But let's, let's, let's really focus on what matters and what's important uh, let's care for ourselves, our communities, and for our country and our ecosystems. And that's what the Urban Agriculture Month and the Urban Agriculture Forum is all about. Social capital and natural capital, bringing it together and really wielding it. It's very inspiring. Naomi, do you want to say anything? Or Yeah, no, just following on, following on from that, I think. Not to sort of um, detract from what Jess was saying, um, or, or Nick in some ways as well, because, you know, people are angry and frustrated and all that. And I get that. I really do. But I think we need to, it's it's time to stop being angry and frustrated and all the rest of it and just get out there and do something. Now, if we're going to sit around and wait for our governments to, to come to the party and, you know, corporates and all the rest of it and trying to change them and their ways of doing things and get them to support all this stuff, it's, it's, too, it's going to be too late. We can go out there and, and grow our own food now. You know, we don't have to wait for 
the local council to go, oh, yeah, you know, in five years' time, yes, we support growing lettuces in the local park. Just go and grow the lettuces in the local park, you know. Grow some lettuces out the front of your house. Put them in a pot on your balcony, you know, up on the corner of your, your roof if you don't have enough room on the balcony. Just whatever, you know. Get out there and do something, everyone, you know. It's, it's people that make the change. And, yes, we need to continue working to try and change things um, policy-wise, governments, you know, business, the whole way we, we are doing things. And it's really important that we continue with that work. But just for people that aren't working in this field and that, uh, you know, have other jobs and, and uh, that sort of thing, they can be a part of this just by getting out there and, and doing it. Go and join your local community garden. Grow a verge garden with your neighbours. Plant a tree. Don't wait for the government to sign off on some policy in 10 years' time going, oh, we've decided it'd be a really good idea finally to go and grow, grow some trees to replace all the ones we've cut down. Just go and grow some. Get in there before them. Be an innovator. Be a part of it. Start a little movement in your own street, in your own neighbourhood, you know, within your own community because every little bit makes a huge difference. And the more people that get in there and do that, the more it's going to push government, council, policymakers, decision makers to start making that change. If they can see one person in the street doing that, you know, it's easy to let those decisions slide for 10 years. They can see every person in the street doing it. They've got to start having a good listen and a good hard think about things. So that's a thought I'd like to leave people with. Just get out there, folks. Join the community garden, grow your own food, get in touch with, you know, ourselves, sustain, all of these there's wonderful organisations and educators and that out there. Um, and it doesn't take much more than a quick Google search to find out what's there in your area where you can learn more and participate and be a part of um, making change yourself in your own world. Oh, thanks, Naomi. Okay, listeners, the inaugural Urban Agriculture Month kicks off this April and includes the Urban Agriculture Forum, webinars, a national events listing and register that you can add your events and celebrations too. So get to it and check it out at uaf.org.au or, may I say, contact Sustain directly for more information. And if you are in Sydney, please join the fun at the Royal Botanic Gardens in the CBD uh, for some very special events that include uh, a work, uh, lunch and learn workshop on foraging with the wonderful Diego Bonetto, which is coming up soon on March the 31st. And don't miss uh, April the 15th live at the Calyx where we're having a, a fabulous panel discussion hosted by Clarence Slocky along with uh, First Nations leaders that include Sharon Windsor from Indigia, Brendan Moore from Royal Botanic Gardens and Chris Andrews from Black Duck Foods. To find out more about that, head to the City of Sydney What's On page and to the Royal Botanic Gardens website and to the Food Swell Facebook page forthcoming. <laughs> Naomi and Nick, just love your work. Thanks so much for speaking with me for Nourishing Matters. All power to you both personally and as the collective that you're all a part of uh, and to transforming our urban and food landscapes. And here's to a fantastic Urban Agriculture Forum and Urban Agriculture Month wherever you are across Australia. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Anthea. Thanks, Anthea. Thanks, Naomi. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review 
in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.